together to the book of Genesis. Once again, finding today's text is very simple. Go to page one in your Bible. As we have started on a long and what I hope will be profitable journey through the book of Genesis. This morning we will be looking at the days of creation, verses 3 through 31. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. It is indeed completely without error. It is completely authoritative. And it is completely sufficient. We need that reminder each week. But I think especially so this week, as we look at the doctrine of creation. Beginning at verse 3 of chapter 1. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning. The second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called sea. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. 
And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. To every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold... It was very good. And there was evening. And there was morning. The sixth day. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would bless your word. That you would teach us from it. That you would convict us by it. And that you would encourage us with it. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week we began our journey through Genesis, and we looked at what others and I called last week the most important verse in the Bible, Genesis 1.1. And that's because everything that we will look at specifically in Genesis, but also in all of the scriptures, it is all in the context, all in the focus Of the God who is there, who exists, and who speaks. We cannot understand anything outside of that context. And that is what we must remember as we come now to the teaching of the scriptures on creation. We must understand creation in the context of the God who is there from Genesis 1.1. And if we do this, we will be encouraged And we will also be equipped because, you see, the doctrine of creation is not something that we must defend, protect, put our claws, fingers, hands around to protect it from the world. No, the doctrine of creation is the declaration from an almighty God that the universe is the creation of a good God and that it was created. Very good. And it is also an encouragement to us that it will be renewed 
and will once again be very good and complete without sin. This morning, I would like us to see three things broadly considered. First, I would like us to see the truth of creation. As we look at what it means to speak of the world as being created, as opposed to just there or self-replicating. The truth of creation. Then secondly, we will look at the days of creation themselves, because it provides us insight into the character of God. And then thirdly, we will look at the crown of creation, at what all of creation builds up to. Are you curious to what that is? Well, I'll give you a hint. Look to your left. Look to your right. Look at yourself. Man is the crown of God's creation. Well, let's begin then by looking at the truth of creation. And you cannot speak of creation without acknowledging the main difficulty in the room. It's not quite an elephant, and I'm not going to leave it silent. And that is that this doctrine of creation makes it plain and clear that there can be no such thing as evolution. Now, let me be very clear what I mean by this. I don't mean that eventually you can have brown squirrels and white squirrels, and in certain habitats, the brown ones become more dominant. And in other habitats, the white ones become more dominant. I don't mean to say that certain species of animals can't develop spots because their habitat helps that. We see this all the time. As a matter of fact, man is about the work of evolution all the time. It's called dog breeding. We breed animals the way we want them to be, to have certain skills. But what we have to remember is that this account of creation says that a fish does not become a sparrow, does not become a dog, does not become a man. It means that all of these creatures, including man, were created by God himself directly. We'll look at that in a bit more detail. But we have to understand here that the problem is not quite that evolution is wrong. We have to understand that evolution asks the wrong question. It doesn't answer our question from last week. Do you remember, kids? Why? Why? Why do dogs bark? Well, because they want to make noise. Why? Well, because they want to be heard. Why? You remember that incessant question that we have from our youngest days. Science is not designed to answer that question. Good scientists will tell you that what science is about is about observing repeatable phenomena and creating or defining laws of nature in the universe around it. And science is absolutely necessary. And as Christians, we ought not know. We must not be afraid of science. As Christians, we should be the ones most enamored with science because we expect the universe to act the same way all the time because it's an orderly universe created by an orderly God. The greatest scientists were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so we cannot be afraid of science. It just is not asking the question that our text is answering. And you see, when scientists attempt to answer questions that science is not equipped to answer, they give the wrong answer. And the main problem with evolution is that it reduces life down to nothing. It's encapsulated in this quote from a famous evolutionist. Man is alone in this unfeeling immensity of the universe, out of which he emerged by chance. Now, if that doesn't depress you, I don't know what will. The thought that somehow I have no purpose in life, no future in life, no past in life, and I'm in an, a, a universe that has no feeling and no hope and is so vast that I can never have any knowledge of my own purpose. But you see, creation does the exact opposite, doesn't it? Why are bugs important? Parents, why do you teach your children not to torture insects? It's because they have value, don't they? Why do they have value? Because they are an act of Almighty God. Everything on the earth is the creation of a good and omnipotent creator. And so, creation makes us proper scientists. And so we have no need at all to fear science. Because science is still figuring things out. There are many scientists today who believe that the speed of light is a variable thing. That near the beginning of creation, even those who do not believe in creation by God, who believe in a Big Bang impersonal creation, they think that the speed of light was faster then than it is now. That as the Big Bang slows down, that so does light. Now this has huge implications for the age of the earth, the age of the universe, all sorts of things. And we just don't know for certain. We also don't know whether the earth was created with apparent age. Now what does apparent age mean? Kids. When Adam was created, how old was he? Was Adam created like this little baby here? I don't think so. He was created a full-grown man, but when he was created a full-grown man, how old was he? Just minutes old. Why couldn't the earth be like that? We don't know. Again, we can't come to that answer because science is still working things out, and scientific improvements are still to come. Science thought it had everything figured out, and then along came Copernicus and said, you know what? Not quite. And then they thought they had everything figured out, and then Sir Isaac Newton came along and said, no, not quite. The world's like this. And then we were all certain everything was exactly as it was to be until a man named Einstein came along and told us, no, not quite. And now there are even rumblings amongst the brightest minds of scientists that Einstein's theories need to be modified or changed. And this is a good thing as we explore, as we learn, as we build on the achievements of others. We should expect science to improve and change. What we shouldn't expect to change, and we should not change at all ever, is the word of God. It's unchanging. 
We need to also remember that we cannot take evolution and somehow godify it. We cannot believe in a world in which God somehow starts things off and then time plus chance takes over. Because that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that God created fish and then he created birds and then he created animals and then he created man. And this word again for creation, we saw this last week, is brought into being. It's a very broad word. God is taking creatures and making order and beauty. He is taking where there was no life and making life. And he creates each of these creatures after their own kind. That's why when your dog gives birth to puppies... You don't find a kitten because nature reproduces after its own kind. But yet at the same time, we must understand that God created the world to be creative. There is a principle of creativity in the world. That's why plants give forth fruit. That's why animals bring forth young. That's why we procreate because God has designed it to be so. The last thing we must understand about the truth of creation is that God is not a watchmaker. I think that the arguments that have been put forth in the recent years about intelligent design are helpful as far as they go. But you must understand that that is not enough. It is not enough to say that the universe is designed by some bland, nameless, faceless, personless designer. And he made it like a watch. And he wound it up and let it go. No, you see, the text also tells us that God is very involved in his creation. He speaks. And instantly things come into being. He speaks the word of fulfillment. It was so. And then he separates and distinguishes things. He separates the waters from the waters. The waters from the land. And he names each of these things. Which reminds us that God has the power. The power to name is the power of authority. That's why parents name their children. That's why names in the Bible mean so much. And then, of course, at the end, God is there pronouncing everything to be good. We must remember that this is the truth of creation, that God is the creator. But we also learn much from the days of creation themselves. Now, this is also a matter of some controversy. If you thought evolution was a tussle, there is a controversy about what the days of creation mean in throughout the history of the Christian church. Now, I have to give you one caveat. That except for the first one that I will give you, all of these other theories are only about 150 years old. But the first one is a few thousand years old. It's called instantaneous creation. And the great church father, Augustine, held to it because he believed that the word of God's power was so powerful that it couldn't take a day or six days to create things. That God must have just created, he said, let there be, and boom, everything was created all at once. But then because we can't understand that, because we have no frame of reference, he described for us 
how creation was in terms of days. Well, that doesn't really work with our text. And that's part of the reason why since Augustine, as brilliant as he was, as godly as he was, pretty much nobody else has signed up for that theory. But there are other theories as well. There's, of course, the gap theory, which came about in the mid-19th century, as science began to discover the fossil record and as we began to think about what that meant, and there were assumptions made that that meant that the earth was a certain age and that certain things had happened, Christians tried to make the Bible fit into the peg, the peg of the Bible fit into the hole of science. And they said, well, you know, maybe what we could do is there's verse 1 of chapter 1, and then there's verse 2 of chapter 1, and in between them could be, I don't know, billions of years. Or between each of the days, there could be millions or billions of years. Now, the problem here with this is, first, that it's an attempt to answer science on its own terms, rather than to stand on the Word of God. The second thing is, like all attempts like that, it just makes the problem worse. The text doesn't allow for it. And what happens in these gaps? And why weren't these gaps described in the text? And how does that affect the fossil record? So there came up another theory called the day-age theory. Because there's a verse in the Bible that says, for a day with the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. And someone said, I understand how this works. The first day was two billion years. And the second day was three billion years. And the fourth day was 555,000 million years. And they would come up with periods of time. And of course, then that solves the problem because if the earth is... As Carl Sagan has reminded us, billions and billions of years old, that solves the problem. But it doesn't. Because it just creates other problems. Because if you're concerned about the fact that the earth is very, very, very old, and you have plants, and then you have plants for billions and billions of years without a sun, how does that work? And, and how do they not overgrow the whole earth? And then you have fish and you have birds but you, you, for billions of years, but you don't have animals. And you don't have death. So how does this work? And it just winds up creating more problems. And so there's a lesson for us here. And that is not that we should avoid scientific inquiry, but we should avoid trying to make quick, obvious solutions. What all we do is cause more problems. You see, if we're not willing to roll up our sleeves and do the very hard work of science, we ought not to dally and play around with it. Because all that will happen is someone will poke holes in that, which is what they've been doing for the last hundred years. The day-age theory has not convinced one secular scientist. Well, there's a, a yet another theory that has come up. This is perhaps... The most ingenious, it's called the framework theory. And the theory goes like this. That the days of creation account is not a historical narrative, it's poetry. Or, well, you know, poetry has those indentations in the Bible, so it's, they call it semi-poetry. And what happens is, there's no attempt to really say that day one came after 
before day two came before day three. There's a parallelism between days one and four and two and five and three. No, one and two. No, one and four, two and five, three and six. You can see I'm already confused. And I think it's nearly a requirement to have a Ph.D. to articulate this with some intelligence. But again, here there's another problem. In order to have this kind of poetic license, this kind of non-historical narrative, you need to have poetical text. And Hebrew has something very interesting. Hebrew doesn't have a word for and. When you say, I went somewhere and we saw someone, there's a little letter that you stick on the beginning of a word that tells you the next thing is coming up. It's called a consecutive conjunction. And so you know there's something coming up next. And this, is, this explains why if you've ever read in your Bible and been confused by reading something like 1 Samuel and you read in verse after verse, and David went here, and they did this, and they went there, and they saw this person, and they had this battle, and they did this. It's because there's this consecutive conjunction. And it is a marker of Hebrew narrative. The second most common place to find this, you're not surprised, is in the book of Joshua, which is narrative. Do you know where the most common place, the most common chapter in all of the Bible where this is found? Genesis 1. God even designed by language to tell us that this is history. And so that takes us then to what I believe is the biblical view that these days of creation are ordinary, normal days. We'll look more into that next week. Because there is a pattern between our rest on the Lord's day and the Lord's rest. And I don't have the lifespan to rest a billion years. I rest a day in a week. Now, this does require us to acknowledge a miracle. That the earth was created out of nothing, wholly formed by God. And that he created it. Apparently to seem to be very, very old. But I ask you, if you are not willing to believe a miracle here, why would you believe a miracle that a man rose from the dead? So do not let the miracle nature of this get in your way. You believe the sun stood still for Joshua? You believe Lazarus came out of the grave even when he stinketh? Then why not believe God here? There is a pattern to this narrative. Well, let's look briefly then at the days themselves. God describes these days of creation for us in a way in which not only we know the narrative and what's happened, but to describe himself. Now, you have to understand, there was no one here to observe creation. That's one of the main barriers to us understanding creation. Nobody saw it. It never repeats. And so, God describes to Moses, who then describes to us, and he begins at day one. And of course, with day one, we have, let the, the Lord says, let there be light. And there was light. How simple is that? Moms, don't you wish you could do that? Let there be dinner. 
And there was. And there were candles. And it was good. Right? How simple. And yet that is the power of our God. He speaks. And it is. Day one shows us the pure power of God. Now, when we see that, how dare we doubt him? Because there's another principle here. God says, let there be light, and light breaks into the darkness and dispels it. And this is, of course, a model for what God does in your life and in mine. Isn't that what he does in Jesus Christ? That Jesus, the light of the world, breaks into the darkness of our sin and dispels it. And creates in us a new, a new heart and a new life. And God looks upon us. And he says, it is good. This is how the Lord creates. The same God who said, let light shine out of darkness, Paul says, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Day one. Now we have day two. Day two is not as simple and harder to understand. God separates the waters from the waters through an expanse. An old translation is a firmament. And neither one of those translations helps me. I don't know what that is. Except that God called it heaven. What I do know is that God here is distinguishing. He is, he is at work And day two describes for us the the order that God brings into the universe. That God is a master craftsman. The word here for making the firmament is like a metal worker pounding out a sheet of metal. You see, God is a master craftsman in designing and ordering this world. So he separates and distinguishes the waters. Then we see day three. And on day three, he gathers together the waters and the land appears. And now we have finally all of the basic dwelling places of the universe prepared. The sky, the water, and now the earth. Now notice again that there is spontaneous obedience to God's word. He speaks and everything obeys. Once again, I ask you, don't you wish your home were run like that? Well, your word would bring about instant and complete compliance and obedience. That's how God is with nature. And again, we see here again that God creates each thing according to his kind. But it introduces another principle here, a principle of fruitfulness in the earth. That the plants are brought forth by the earth, and the plants themselves bring forth other plants. And so there is creativity. I have bad news for some of you. There is no Mother Earth. She doesn't exist. But the earth is indeed fruitful, because God has made it to be so. That's day three. In day four, God creates the great lights. He creates the sun and the moon, and this gives some people some difficulty. Because how do we have let there be light in in day one when there's no sun until day four? Now, the Bible answers that for us in the other part of the bookend, in Revelation 22. 
where the Bible describes for us that we will have no need for sun or moon because God himself is our light. This is the fullness of the glory of God, I believe, specifically in the person of Jesus Christ, the light of the world, the word of God himself. So why have a sun and a moon? Well, God tells us. We have a sun and a moon to separate the day from the night. We have the sun and the moon to serve as signs for the times, for the seasons. And then it's almost a by the way to provide light. So the purpose of these lights is not merely to give us light and heat. It is a part of the organizational structure that God has established. And then Moses does something for us that I find fascinating. He talks about the creation of the sun and the moon in verse 16. And then, sort of offhand, and the stars. Now think about that. Because of the ingenuity and wisdom of our scientists, we are able to establish, at least within some realm of understanding, that our galaxy is 100,000 light years across. That means if you could travel at the speed of light, it would take you 100,000 years to get from one end of the Milky Way to the other. The nearest other galaxy is 2 million light years away. And we don't even know how big the universe is because we don't have the tools to observe it. And in all of them are what? Oh, stars. How many? Billions upon billions upon trillions. We don't even have a number word. Look at the power of God. That he throws off the stars. And and this is also a reminder to us, it's a defeat of all of our attempts to take creation and twist it to our own ends. You cannot read verse 16 of chapter 1 and be an astrologist. The stars don't control your fate. I don't care what sign of the zodiac you are born under. It doesn't control your personality. I always wondered about that, too, because these signs of the zodiac, I look up in the sky and there's, there's a couple of dots in the sky and then someone goes and draws 75 lines and says, look, it's a scorpion. I, I don't see it. But you see, man has tried to worship the stars because they're big and beyond him. They've tried to worship the sun, worship the moon. But God says, that is so foolish, I made them all. This is the powerful God we serve. And you see, all of these things are there to show us who God is. Paul tells us in Romans 1 that the visible things of the world were created that we might see the nature of the invisible God. This is day five. Day five takes the swarming and the teeming of the creatures that God has created. And God creates the sea creatures, the great sea creatures, and he tames the sea. And this teaches us that God is in charge of everything that we're even afraid of. There is nothing more fearful to ancient man, well, really, than modern man, than a gigantic sea monster. Would you really like to come up face to face with Godzilla? I don't think so. 
The sea itself is a fearful place. We see this even today. We fear tidal waves and typhoons. And God says, I am master of it all. You need not be afraid. So if you are afraid today, I don't care whether it's of the dark or of your job going away or of your health. God is telling you here today in the midst of day five that he is bigger than all of your fears. You can trust him. Lastly, we have day six. Day six brings us animals, three types of animals that we will see throughout Genesis. Large domesticated animals, often called cattle. Creeping things, which really aren't snakes so much as they are the small animals. You know, gerbils, hamsters, tiny things. And then, of course, there's the beasts, that is the wild animals. All of these three categories. But the important thing about these three categories is what is missing. What's missing is man. Man is not an animal. And we see that in our third and final point this morning. That man is the crown of creation. That on day six, God creates man in his own image. And it is a very different sort of day. God then begins now to talk amongst himself, to contemplate. He says, let us create man in our own image. He creates man distinct from the animals. Now, there are some similarities. Animals have blood. We have blood. Animals have skin. We have skin. Right? But there are fundamental differences. And our society is losing this, and it is up to the church to stand here. Does it anger you that a schnauzer has more rights to life than a baby in the womb? If you go home and shoot your dog, you will be arrested. And yet, every year, millions upon millions of babies are butchered. It's because our world doesn't understand the reality of the world. Man is created in God's image. It means he has the capacity to rule. He is God's representative here on earth. And that is about more than power, beloved. That is about wisdom and stewardship. Genesis 1 is perhaps the best argument for preserving the environment properly that you can find. Not treating the environment as if it were a person, but treating it as God's creation. Man is created in God's image, and that means he has the three R's. He is rational. He can think. He is relational. And he is righteous. He is created with a moral being. And life, indeed, is sacred. And when God creates man, he then begins to command him. He commands him to be blessed. He commands him to be fruitful. And he commands him to take dominion. Now, by dominion here, we do not mean that God says you can do whatever you want to the world, to people, etc. It means that you are charged with building the kingdom of God here on earth. Are you up to the task? Not if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior or not. It begins there. That's where dominion begins. Dominion begins with submission to Jesus. 
And all of this culminates in noticing that the world is created for us. It is indeed a man-centered universe, not because the sun or the earth is the center, but because God has created the world. He has created all of this wonder of the universe that his glory might be displayed in you and me. Let's conclude by looking just very briefly at Psalm 8. I think it puts everything into perspective for us. The psalmist writes that when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? As we look at this big world with everyone telling us we're a speck that has no importance. We must remember where the psalmist ended up. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you have crowned him, that is man, with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Lord, O oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the purpose of creation, the glory of God found in the redemption and glorification of man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have created, you have created all things, including us. And we ask that you would remind us of your goodness to us, even this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.